Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, I have the amazing Silky Herwald with me. She is a master hypnotherapist and a master NLP practitioner. Silky is a very, very important person in my life because she helped me to overcome my eating disorder. So welcome to the show, Silky. I am so, so happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true pleasure. I'm going to fill you a little bit in on how I found Silky. So my mom in desperation, when I was at the very, very sort of tipping point of the end of my eating disorder, found Silky online and she actually looked at your photo and went, Mill, come and have a look at this lady. Do you think? (laughs) She said, look at her eyes. She just looks like she could really help. This is what happened. I don't know if I've ever told you (gasps) that. No, I didn't know that. Yes. And she she made me come down to her office and I I was just beside myself at that point and I thought, and, and she did and she said, would you go to see her? Would you give it a try? And I was all prepared to say no. And then I took one of you and said, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> she just looks really lovely. I, I knew that, that mum had found me, but I didn't know that it was all about the photo. That's mm, brilliant. Mm. Well, I think because I was so braindead at that point, <laughs> I don't think she would have got me to read anything else. But so Silky really was the first person to ever tell me that I could change my brain. I remember when you when I walked in and you said to me, you know, one of the first things that you did say to me was if you really want to change your brain, you can. And no practitioner in any therapy session that I'd ever had had said that to me. It was always, well, you'll learn how to manage the thoughts and the thoughts will always be there. And for me, that was that moment where I really was like, okay, I am going to give this a real go because I thought, okay, someone is actually saying to me, I don't have to live with this for the rest of my life. Yep. And it was so incredibly mm. empowering for mm. me yes, to know that you attacked things really differently for me from any other practitioner that had ever dealt with my eating disorder. You really went straight in to the bedrock of what my eating disorder was, was founded on. And although I kicked and screamed (laughs) when you went, well, it pretty much was that, wasn't it? That was the stuff that I had to to face. And if I wasn't going to face it, then I wasn't going to get well. And you really helped me to see that. So 
Yeah. And that was that was that moment where I really was like, okay, I have to be all in and really do this. And this is going to be really hard yakka. But that's the only way. And I knew it because I knew when you touched on those things, my visceral reaction inside of me. And so I knew, okay, you're on to something. Yeah. But the thing also was, is that I think when your mum first contacted me, I think I made it very clear to her as well that she can't book you in. Yes. You needed to do that and that you needed to be all in. Otherwise, there was really no no point in, in doing this. And uh, what I found fascinating with you that from that first session, you kind of went like, okay, I got it. I need to take responsibility here. It's not my practitioner's job. It's it's me. I got to do it. And you really took that responsibility fully on board and you were willing to go there. Kicking and screaming. Yes, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> but but you went there. Yeah. Because you kind of got that feedback, I think, from that that feeling on the inside to kind of go Right. Okay. That's telling me something. So let's do this. And I remember, I remember when mum said that to me that, you know, even though she tried to explain that I was very unwell and so could she just do it all. And you were adamant that I had to, you know, I had to book it in and it really did make me stop and think, gosh, yeah, it is actually time for me to step up and take ownership in every way, not just, you know, in session, but actually like, this is, this is my thing and I need to deal with it. Yes. And it was, it, that was really profound. I, I vividly remember mum saying to me, I was like, well, just no, you do it. She was like, no, no. This is, if you want to have a session with Silky, <laughs> this is what has to happen. Yes. Yeah. So for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do. Well, why I do what I do is, well, I was always very interested in, in, in how the brain works and how we as humans function. And of course, we, we've all, every human being has had some, some form of trauma in the past. We've all had stuff going on. But of course, for me, the question is, why do people, some people, it doesn't impact them, but other people, mm. it impacts them. So I was always interested really in what's the difference that actually makes the difference. And I realized very quickly that that talking about the problem, putting the world to rights, and always kind of talking about the same old story was never making a difference. And I also I, I knew that as a teenager when I was kind of like having a chat fest with my my friends, and I kind of left feeling even more deflated than than when we started. So that talking about it didn't didn't really work. Then just through through I don't know fluke really coincidence, I fell into into NLP and hypnosis because. To me, as soon as I realized that there is so much stuff that we consciously know, we know what we should be doing, but we just don't do it. So, of course, I realized very quickly that if we could have solved this problem consciously, we would have solved it with our logical, rational thinking. Yes. So I knew that there needed to be something else than just the conscious stuff. And as soon as I found NLP, I realized this was really going to the unconscious stuff. I'm a, I'm a very logical person. So to me, this, the whole thing was in the beginning was a bit woo-woo. And I just clearly remember kind of sitting there kind of going like, really? But once I understood that NLP and hypnosis, when done well, the first thing to do is to work out the structure of the problem. And with that, I mean, is what does the person do on the inside of their heads in order to produce this feeling? What is the stuff that we say to ourselves? How fast do we say it? What type of voice do we say it in? What images do we make on the insides of our heads? And then what feeling does that produce? Or also what, what analogies do we use? What metaphors do we use on the inside? 
And then I realized that all of those things together then produce something that we might call, all right, somebody's doing anxiety or whatever the problem is that the person is doing. But there's always something that they do that another person would do differently, hence they don't get that response. And once I realized that there always is this structure behind the problem, there's literally a strategy on how to do the problem, I kind of thought, okay, that makes sense now. And um, my, my logical part was happy with that, which is why I very often kind of feel a bit more like a detective in working with clients to just kind of go, what are they doing on the inside? What, what? And I invite my clients to become curious about the problem. Yes. Yeah. So that they don't hate the problem anymore, but that they become a little bit curious and a bit fascinated. It's like, wow, that's interesting. What am I doing now? What's my brain doing? I always find that it very quickly empowers the client as well. There's that sense of like, ah, okay, right. I can be a detective here too. There's nothing wrong with me. It's just that I'm running some weird programs on the inside. I always remember you talking about the programs and talking about brain, like a hard drive or the, like, it's like a file box. And I think you're right. It does empower you when you think about it differently and you become curious about it. You don't become frustrated or feel helpless and like, well, this is just my lot in life. It is a sense of, okay, so why am I thinking this way? Why has this become my reality? Yeah, absolutely. So I always, I I like using the analogy of um, your, your hardware is fine you're okay. You're just running some old dodgy software programs. And we just got to upgrade the software. A lot of the old software programs, they're running fine. They're they're doing a brilliant job, but some of them, they're just not really doing their job anymore. So then, okay, great. Let's, let's change it. Let's pull out those, those programs and find new ones that work better. How would you describe NLP to someone who has got no idea what it is? Can you give us a little bit of a definition, so to speak? So NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. So neurons are the neurons in the brain and how our neurology really works. Linguistics is, of course, our language and how our language quite accurately describes what's happening on the inside. And of course, the programming then is the programs that we are running. So sometimes I think there can be a misconception where people think, ooh, you are programming my mind. No, 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 no. I'm just interested in the programs that you're already running And I'm only interested in the programs that you would like to change. And then we'll find a better way on how you can do that. And that's really very much what NLP is. So NLP is a massive toolbox to help people find better ways, program themselves better. And NLP is very much based on the idea of modeling, which means that if one person can achieve excellency in something, then of course, if I copy exactly what that person does... I copy their beliefs, their values, their thought processes, what they do on the inside, I can achieve that excellency as well. It's very much like following following a, a cooking recipe. So the first person to ever, I don't know, bake a chocolate cake, they probably got the wrong ingredients. They got the wrong measurements of those ingredients. Eventually, it took them many, 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 many goes without it going anywhere. And eventually they worked it out. Now, of course, you just open the the cookbook, follow the recipe, and you can get a pretty good result on your first go. So for example, what the NLPers did to help people overcome phobias, because I mean, this is going back into the 70s, there's the NLP phobia 
cure. So what they did is they put an ad in the paper and said, we are looking for people who used to have a phobia of something, but don't have it anymore. And then they interviewed them and said, okay, so what did you used to do? And literally find out what images were they making? What were they saying to themselves? Da, da, da. And they found the difference that made the difference. And that's how they distilled down the NLP phobia cure. So the, the whole concept of modeling very much is if somebody else can do it and you follow exactly what they do, you can, you can get that result as well. Why do you think NLP is so powerful? A, I think because it puts the person back into the driver's seat. So they're not some, you know, victim or whatever. No, it's about, come on, let's let's solve this together. I think that has got a huge part to play in it. And I think also the 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 underlying concepts of NLP is is one of them is is there's no behavior that is either good or bad. Every behavior can be appropriate given the right circumstance. Yes. Yeah. So nothing, no matter how negative it may be perceived by a society, but every behavior can be incredibly useful in the right environment under the right circumstances. And I think that instantly kind of takes the pressure off people. Now, also, of course, in another one of those principles in LLP is, is that everything is learned. So, of course, if somebody is, for example, doing an eating disorder or they're doing anxiety, well, congratulations, you just learned how to do that really well. You be, you achieved excellency at this. I always remember when you first said to me about that, you know, and you're doing your eating disorder. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not something I'm trying to do. Like, and I got really defensive. <laughs> I remember. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it, but it's, and it's it's so interesting when you, you shift in the way that you talk about something and the language that you use, how powerful that can be. Yes. Absolutely. Because it is more about, because then when people have something, I have an eating disorder, I have anxiety. Well, then it becomes really difficult to change because it is a label that is stuck on me and I have it. But of course, when we put it more into the context of it's a behavior, it is something that you do. And it's again, the stuff that you do on the inside of your head. But of course, behaviors, they're kind of a bit like habits, and habits yes. can be changed, especially when you really want to. So, and I think, again, it's one of those things that kind of changes the thinking and empowers the, the person again to kind of go, okay, right, let's, let's get curious. How, how do I do this problem? What do I do? Yeah. What do, you do? Yeah. And of yeah. course, the, the thing is, is that with NLP, the first thing that we always do is we help the person set a goal. What's the goal here? And we help them set one big goal. What do they want ultimately out of this? But also what's like the mini goal that you want to achieve here today? What's one little thing that you could change today that will help you get closer to this big goal? And um, then, of course, we always check in. Does the person actually believe that they can get there? Of course, when they first start, they never believe that they can get to their big goal. But mm. through through having those micro goals and achieving them along the way, that of course builds confidence and helps the, the, the person kind of go, oh, actually, well, when I first came, I was here and now I'm here. Ha! Huh. And that gives them something to celebrate. And that again builds confidence. Then of course, I mean, there's always determination is needed. We need bucket loads of determination, right? And um, we need to have accurate strategies. And of course, 
the person is there because the strategies that they used to use aren't working so well. So we want to help the person come up with different strategies on how to approach, I don't know, daily life or, or eating or whatever it may be. And then, of course, there's always just the feedback mechanism. So it takes it out of that. It's not, it's, it's not personal. It's not personal. You just got to have a goal, the belief that you can get there, accurate strategies that support you in getting closer to that goal. You've got to have bucket loads of determination and you've got to have a feedback mechanism that lets you know whether you're getting closer to the goal. Yes. But then, of course, it just comes down to, okay, do you get closer to the goal? Yes or no? If you're not getting closer, well, we've got to change the strategy again. That's all there is to it. But it depersonalizes the problem because people always think there's something wrong with me. This is my lot in life. Da, da, da. Yeah. No, no, it's not that. Your strategies just weren't particularly great. And what I always find is with, with eating disorders, they got bucket loads of determination. That ain't the problem. No, I and mean, it's just about, as we've always said, ch- channeling it in the right way. You're either channeling the determination into your eating disorder or you're channeling it into recovery. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah determination is never the problem. <laughs> <laughs> what do you believe are sort of the key differences between NLP and other more traditional therapies that are used for eating disorders like cognitive behavioural therapy or dialectal behavioural Um, I can't comment too much on it because I don't know enough about them. I I know a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy, but the problem with cognitive behavior therapy is, is very cognitive. It's very conscious. So what you end up with is a constant battle between the conscious and the unconscious processes, which just takes so much willpower. Plus, of course, thought at the level of the unconscious travels much, much, much faster than thought at the level of the conscious mind. So hence, the unconscious, when, when, when push comes to shove, when in doubt, the unconscious process always wins. Then it can create an even bigger problem because then the person kind of goes, oh, I knew what I should have been doing, but I just didn't do it. In that moment, I'm self-sabotaging. No, there is no such thing as self-sabotage. It's just that conscious and unconscious are not aligned. And when the conscious and the unconscious are not aligned, you kind of have that constant, constant battle. It's just that the conscious has got a different value system. So the conscious is only concerned with the value system of the wants. I want to get better. I want to do the right thing. I want da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The unconscious processes are only concerned with the value system of the needs. I need to feel safe and secure. I need to feel da-da-da-da, whatever it may be. And when push comes to shove, the unconscious always wins. So there is no such thing as self-sabotage, really. It's just a misunderstanding between conscious and unconscious. So when the wants and the needs are not aligned. But once the unconscious realizes that it can get its needs met just as well as, or even better than in the old way, mm. then we're starting to get somewhere. And I do think that that is such a key part of what worked for me was was working on the unconscious because my conscious mind at the point in time when I started working with you was so consumed by my eating disorder. You weren't going to be able to get in that way. I mean, it was a brick wall, right? Yeah. And so you came in another way and that's how things started to little by little be able to shift. I don't believe that you would have been able to do it with my conscious mind at that point. No, no, no. I remember clearly there were quite a few times when we tried to go somewhere and was just like, just no, 
no. I was like, okay, good. There's a, there's, there's a certain amount of resistance that kind of needs to happen. And then it's not that change is hard or difficult or not welcome. It's more that people fear the unknown. They fear yes. what's on the other side of the change that they wish to make. And then they just stay in their current situation. They stay in their comfort zone, even if that is not a great place to be at all. So there's always that much that you can push and we have to push, but then it's kind of also kind of going, okay, it's kind of finding that balance. Sometimes you've got to go straight for it. And sometimes you kind of got to go around the back door, basically. What are the advantages of, you know, with me used a combination of, of NLP and hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the advantages of doing that? Look, at the end of the day, both NLP and, and hypnosis, hypnotherapy are both ways of working with the unconscious with unconscious processes. So I don't think that we could have gotten a result if we had just gone for NLP. And I also don't think we could have gotten a result if we had just gone for hypnotherapy. There are just certain things that kind of work better. Before I start, I never know what that is. But in the session, it always becomes clear what to use very quickly. I think that's what I also loved is, you know, you would have a whole session planned out. Like I could see it because you had a piece of paper. And then sometimes I'd come in there and I'd be an absolute mess. And you were just able to just zone in right into that space and then work on whatever was present at that time. And I loved that because it was like, it wasn't like you were ignoring, okay, and but this is what we're going to do today. And and I loved that because yes. it, we, we actually got somewhere then. Yeah, absolutely. So, so often I kind of take my piece of paper <laughs> and just scrunch it up and chuck it in the bin and um, just go, okay, what, what have we got here? <laughs> yeah, and the ability to be dynamic like that, it was something that I hadn't ever experienced with any other therapy. Mm. So I think, well, for me, I know it was really, really powerful. Yeah. You know, you've, you've always said that to work with a client, you require hundred percent commitment. Why? If they're not a hundred percent in, then there is a lack of responsibility taking. Those those missing twenty percent, then it kind of quickly kind of goes, oh well it's too hard. Yeah, that that complete commitment, we need that because that of course helped you push through that resistance, mm. push through when the going got tough and kind of go, okay, this is tough but we're going somewhere. And I think you also always knew that I always was in your corner. Absolutely. That I was pushing you, mm. but I was pushing you, for want of a better word, out of love, out of wanting to help. Completely. Yeah. I never doubted that for a so second. I was always in your corner. Um, and I think that's also why you let me push you. It was. It was. I mean, I remember storming out of your room so many times and running across to the beach when you were really – really confronting me with the fact that, you know, I couldn't have recovery and then hold on to those things that I still wanted to hold on to. Mm. You know, it was one or the other. But then over the course of the week before I came to another session with you, you know, sitting with mum and turning to her and go, well, maybe Silky's right. You know, her going, well, yeah, (laughs) maybe, because you have held on to that belief for the last 15 years and look where we are. You know, and that the moment of going, oh gosh, okay, but that's going to mean that this is going to be really scary. But scary. But I was able to try. I think that was that was there was that complete, complicit trust in you that, okay, yes, we're going to do this, but yet that you were in my corner, which yeah. I, I would not have been able to do that if I didn't feel that because it was literally like jumping off a cliff. Yeah, totally. Totally. Absolutely. It totally is. Yeah. And that's, that's incredibly scary. Mm. I think we can become... All of us, it doesn't matter whether it's an eating disorder or something else, our beliefs, they can become so strong because they form part of who we are. It's part of my identity. So who I'm going to be if I don't believe this about myself anymore? 
and that is scary. So of course we we kind of get that it isn't really working for us, but who am I going to be if I jump yes. off that cliff? Yeah. Mm. So it's almost like reinventing yourself. And you did that beautifully. And I take my hat off to your mum. Yeah. So do I. <laughs> Ten times over. <laughs> that, that she was also fully able to kind of help you through all those things yes. in between the sessions. She was incredible Absolutely. at that. She sat there and she wrote notes and she was able to then in those other, you know, days between, she would point things out to me and say, well, remember that's what Silky said in the session or that's similar to the metaphor that she used. And that was then able to ha- make me have those moments of like, oh, okay, because sometimes I was just so overwhelmed in the session or in the beginning when we started working together. I mean, I was so physically unwell that mentally I wasn't even really able to take in what was even happening. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think in the beginning I also kind of uh, went a lot of hypnosis on you. Yes. Because we just needed a way in. And those questions, I just knew you were just physically not able to answer some of the questions that I was going to ask you. So, yeah, we kind of needed to get some way in and and build that trust as well. Often with eating disorders, there's a lot of rigidity in thinking. (laughs) What are some ways that you can, you know, recommend that our listeners can help to improve their cognitive flexibility? So it can can be really simple things um, because, of course, that rigidity is is not just around food. The rigidity quite often is about everything. And it can just be as simple as, I don't know, if you always put your right shoe on first, make a conscious decision Mm. to from now on always put your left shoe on first. Yeah. Or if you kind of leave the house and you always turn, I don't know, that way down the street, hey, turn the other way. Or go for a different walk. I remember we had that exercise at some stage because you were always doing the same walk, yeah? And that blew your brains out to go for a different walk. But it was was such a key piece. Yes. So, of course, to build more flexibility in something that is not eating related. Yes. But once, again, it builds that confidence because then the brain kind of goes, wow, I put the left shoe on first and I'm still alive. It's a miracle. Yeah? Wow. I walked a different way from the car to the, wow. It builds that confidence that change is possible and that actually nothing bad happened. Mm. So, Mm. um, and I think that those can be very simple things, but very key elements in, in just building a bit more flexibility around stuff, changing the routine. I also just remembering now, you also talked to me about how I remember you'd worked with a guy who was a truck driver, I think, and you'd got him to change up his environment around yes. him in the cab. Can you remind me what that was about? Yeah. So the, 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 um, our environments can be great predictors for behaviour. So for example, let's say you moved in and you put – I don't know, the cups in this cupboard first. Mm. And then you had them there for a couple of months and then you realise that doesn't actually make sense. Um, They would be way better off in this cupboard Mm. here. I can guarantee you four weeks later, you still open the old cupboard because the brain is just so tuned into autopilot as soon as you go into this environment, right? Now, of course, the same happens, for example, with um, drug addicts. They were in rehab and then after rehab, they kind of stayed with a friend or whatever and um, they're completely fine. But then they come home into their old environment and they sit on that same couch or whatever and the brain goes, I know what we do here. This is where we do the problem behavior again because it just reminds them of everything. 
And of course, the same is true. Um, this, this truck driver, for example, was um, somebody I had helped quit smoking. So with my quit smoking clients, I always say to them, look, rearrange the furniture. If they've got a, a spot where they always go to to have a smoke, um, throw that old chair out, mm. put a pot plant mm. there so that you can't be in that same spot. Because then they sit in a different spot, they look at something else and the brain goes, well, I don't know, maybe this is where we just have a cup of tea. I don't know. Now, of course, with a truck driver, he couldn't really do that. But what he did, he just bought some red sticky tape and put some red crosses in his cabin so that the eye now had something else to look at because his main thing was was um, smoking while he was driving. So um, changing the environment can be so incredibly useful. So the, the brain just kind of goes, okay, this is new. This is different. It's okay to be a different person, to reinvent myself now. And I think for me, and now I'm remembering when we talked about it was because I think I was worried about going home. You know, what, what would happen when I saw the stairs again that I used to, you know, do, do certain behaviours on, just different things that were going to evoke memories because I had been here on the coast for so long and I didn't want, I was so paranoid about, well, was I going to lose this all when I went home? And I think that's why we were talking about it is to like, okay, well, how can we change that up and how can we associate new memories with those same yeah, things? Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, you used a lot of metaphors, I remember, with mm. me. Why do you use metaphors? So the unconscious processes information very much through metaphors. And um, so, for example, when you say, when you hear somebody saying, people use metaphors and analogies all the time. Mm -hmm. So people quite often say something like, oh, I don't know, it just feels like I'm sitting in this deep, dark hole. So again, that is an accurate description of what is actually happening on the inside. Or people might say something um, along the lines, it just feels like I'm drowning. Or it feels like I'm this roller coaster constantly, mm. or I feel like I'm in this hamster wheel. So people use metaphors all the time. And I remember at some stage, I think you said it felt like you were in a in a washing machine just being tumbled around all the time. Yes. And then there's there's two ways of working with with metaphors is I prefer always prefer working with the client's metaphors when they come up with, with one um, and either let the client themselves work out how they can change it mm -hmm. so that they kind of basically work their way out of the washing machine. Or I use the metaphor that they have used in a hypnotic way as well that contains then the solution to the problem. So metaphors are very, very useful um, for helping the unconscious to get the conscious mind out of the way. Because the conscious mind is the part of you that kind of instantly, if I were to tell you, you just got to go and do this, the conscious mind will go, no, I'm not doing it. But mm. when we use a metaphor that contains the solution to the problem, then the conscious kind of goes like, why are, you made, why are you telling me a weird story about, I don't know, a Christmas tree and a fridge walking down the street? And the conscious mind is all confused about it. But of course, it contains the solution and the unconscious goes, oh, that seems like a good idea. Let's go for that. Mm. So again, metaphors can be like the, the sneaky other way in, the sneaky way in. Yeah? yeah. But of course, it's not sneaky because we agreed on what you, what you want. So I'm just mm. helping you do that. Mm. Or help the unconscious find a better way. Mm. No, I still, I still remember certain metaphors that you make gave me, or things that would happen over the course of you know the week between sessions. And Mum would go, "Wasn't oh, that interesting? Because that aligns with the metaphor that Silky said." And it was just like the first time that it happened, it kind of freaked me out. It was just like just blew my mind. I'm like, "Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that." <laughs> I remember when I was beating myself up over you know 
past mistakes that I'd made. And you would always say to me, you did the best that you could at that point in time with all the tools, skills, and knowledge that you had. I, to this day, like I will often hear your voice in my head as I'm being harsh on myself about something. And I think it's so, so powerful. Why do you feel that self-compassion is important in in the recovery process? I think self-compassion is really important in in anything in life, Mm. in anything. Um, Absolutely in in the recovery process, of course, but but also I think with regards to anything, Mm. because when we beat ourselves up, we just kind of like get stuck in, in that moment and we can get so lost in it. And then, of course, again, then we personalize it again then it's mm-hmm. it's my fault, there's something wrong with me, blah, blah, blah. And it goes into that, that rabbit hole again. But of course, once we realize that with all the information, all the data, all the knowledge that we collected at, up until that moment in time, you did the best that you could. If I can promise you, if you could have mm. done it better, y- you would have done it better. You just didn't have the resources. And once we kind of realize that, in my experience, it does two things. A, once we realize that we did the best that we could at that moment in time, we also then can look back at that mistake and kind of go, ha, huh, that didn't really work. Well, but what can I learn from that? So mm. through that self-compassion, learning from something in the past becomes a lot easier because we don't kind of go, oh, that was so horrible. I don't even want to think about it. Or every time I think about it, all I see is what I did wrong and then I beat myself up. But there's no learning in that. But yeah. once we kind of have that more self-compassionate view on it, then we can kind of go, yeah, that wasn't great. But what am I going to do differently next time? So there's mm-hmm. actually learning. And the learning is what helps us move forward again. I think it also takes away a lot of the blame or the shame or whatever you're feeling about it. And therefore you're not channeling energy into that. Yes. And so you're able to have that energy focused more positively <laughs> in a recovery orientated sense or just in a life in yes. a life sense rather than dwelling on these things that, well, the reality of it is it's been, it's gone. Yes. yes and yes. so why spend time back there thinking about it? Yeah. And it's so true because of course, when we spend time back there thinking about it, we're actually missing the present moment. And then we might be out on a walk, but we don't actually see the beauty of nature. We don't Mm. see any of that because in our heads, we're still beating ourselves up. And I think really a huge part of the recovery process probably is also actually being able to be in the moment to get those glimpses of joy right here, right now. Otherwise, what's the point of living? So yeah, and to get those glimpses of joy, to be that present, I think is a huge part in it too. Oh, it was, I know it was massive for me. I remember because in my eating disorder, I was always either dwelling on the past of, or I don't want to end up looking like that again, or I don't want things to be like that or dwelling on past mistakes, whatever it was, or in the future going, well, you know, but I don't know what I'm going to look like, but who am I going to be? What will that feel like? What if I get out of control? And, And all of these worries, whereas I was never just physically present. I mean, I think I'd forgotten how to be present, you know, in the moment and just hadn't realized over those 15 years that I was either always in the past or in the future in this constant state of worry um, and almost like a frenzy. And that probably that washing machine analogy coming back again. Whereas when I was able to have those moments where I was present and I was just able to sit and be on the beach, or I was able to, in a moment, 
say that we were walking past somewhere and, and say that I wanted an ice cream or I, you know, wanted to scroll from the bakery or whatever it was and just these moments of going, oh my gosh, actually that just came out of my mouth. And I actually just said that rather than thinking, oh, well, it's not the time that I should be having something or it wasn't. And I think that was a combination of the rigidity being dismantled, but also the ability to be able to just be present and be like, that would be a really nice thing to do right now. Or I feel like it rather than constantly being in that conscious state of yeah having to overthink things all the time well i think also a, a, a huge part of 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 eating disorders i think is is that people are so disassociated from their body yes they only exist kind of like from from probably more from here up so that they they really only exist kind of like in their head and not in their body at all. And of course, I think in order to be able to do an eating disorder, you need to be disassociated because otherwise it would hurt. <laughs> you would just kind of go, no, I'm not liking how I how my body well, feels. Know, I think back to it and I'm like, how did I even do that? Yeah. Literally, how did I do yeah. that? Because it was so excruciatingly painful. If someone asked me to do it now, I'd be like, why and how? How? Exactly. Yeah. So, so in order to be able to do an eating disorder, you need to be incredibly disassociated from your body. So you literally just need to exist in your head. But of course, it's really difficult then to actually feel the sand between your toes. Mm. Well, in order to do that, you need to associate back into your body. Yeah, you're going to feel the sand between your toes, but you're also going to feel the pain in, in, in your stomach or whatever it may be. But of course, it's all part of that. So to help the person kind of associate more into themselves again. Mm. And that was something that I really felt towards the end of you know, working with you is that I had come back with that connection, you know, that body, mind, soul connection it was very much, I did feel whole again in a way. I mean, I talked often talked about it as coming home to myself and also becoming softer with things. So not only was my body becoming softer, but also I was becoming softer with the way that I, that I viewed things in the world, the way that I treated other people, the way that I treated myself. Yes, absolutely. You just touched on something really important when you said that you were having these thoughts about how is it going to be? What is my body going to be like? But of course, I think at the beginning, those are questions that you can't even answer. With with the mental state, with the beliefs, the values, the resources, the understandings that you have at that moment in time, that's way too far down the track. And then, of course, when people kind of look at that and go, well, who am I going to be? That just becomes too overwhelming. Yes. It's just as in, okay, where was I when I first walked in here? Okay. Right. Wow. I have come a long way. So instead of mm. looking mm. at the goal and then becoming completely overwhelmed and going, whoa, I, I, that's too much. I don't, I don't even know who I'm going to be. Like, what's the point? Then, then it just leads to overwhelm. But when we kind of look at where you were and where you had come to within, I don't know, a few weeks, that's then also gave you that confidence and was worthwhile celebrating. Like, no, you have come. You have come forward. You have made changes. For me, it's always balancing the, the the overwhelm level as well, and to kind of go, okay, but what's what's the goal for this week? What's the goal for the next three weeks? Let's work on that. Mm. I remember a lot of people doubting the fact that in the six months that we'd work together, that all of a sudden I'd turn my life around. I'd gone from being on death's door to being well. You know, there was a lot of people that were like, well, that's not possible. You know, average recovery rate, <laughs> anorexia, seven years or something like that. It's like. You know, but it is possible. It's totally, totally possible if you are, you're in there and you're committed and you're willing to to give it a go. Yes. 
Well, and I think really the importance is the being committed mm. and being all in to kind of go, I'm so fed up with this. Yes. I don't really know what my life is going to be on the other side, but I'm not willing to spend another day doing this. Mm. I'm going to do what it takes. Come hell or high water, I'm going mm. to sort this out. Mm. I really did feel like yeah. that. It was like, okay, yes, this is really hard. It is excruciating. And it was literally felt like torture sometimes, but then I would always think, but hang on, I don't want to be living like this anymore. I do not want, if this is what my life is going to be, I don't want it to be like that. The other thing is, is that, yes, of course, it did feel like torture, but having had to live the life that you were living mm. beforehand yes. for another, I don't know, seven years, 10 years, 20 years, that would have been way more torture than doing a little bit of torture that we did together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you believe that regardless of the duration or severity of someone's illness, that if they are fully committed to change, that they can recover? Yeah, absolutely. When they are fully committed. Yes. Come hell or high water. And they take full responsibility for themselves and their own actions. Because very yes. often I find, and that is a mass generalization, and I'm sorry if somebody isn't, <laughs> uh, but that there often is a tendency to blame other people. Oh, deflect. To, to yeah. blame the universe, to blame whatever. Um, if only that person would be behaving differently, then I would be well. If only da, 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 was mm. different, then I could be. So there's all that kind of deflection, excuses, all that. So with all in, it's like, I don't care. I, we can't change the other people. I don't mm. care what your brother, sister, mum, dad, sibling, I don't care what any of them are doing. You need to learn how to self-nurture. You need to learn how to take responsibility no matter what goes on around you because mm. that's that's the key in this I'm all in so that we really don't kind of um, yeah have those other kind of like little side battlefields that are really not important. Exactly. I mean, they're really just distractions. I mean, I remember so many times over the years deflecting, oh, well, you know, if, if mum could do this or, well, if, if my therapist was able to do this, then I could, you know, and it's like, it's just complete classic deflection of going, well, no, actually this is down to you yeah. and you have to take responsibility. And I often talk to my clients about taking a leap of faith. Yes. And that is literally so what I, that is what I did with you. Yeah. I walked in those doors and probably not in the first session took the leap of faith, but I think, you know, <laughs> you two did. or three sessions in, I I was like, okay, you know what? This is, yeah. you know, Silk is the real deal here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and she's prepared to commit to me. So I've got to make that, you know, I need to honour that and I need to show her that same commitment. Yeah, yeah. and I think you, you, you did that so well that, okay, I'm, I'm all in, I'm doing this. And I think that unfortunately is where people can let themselves down mm. by not being all in, by leaving a little gap like, oh, yeah, we'll just check it out for a bit. Well, I think I knew that over those, those 15 years previous, I had always not being all in. I recognize that, you know, I recognize that I just held on to that tiny little bit of it. And, and I'd seen what that had done because even just that tiny little bit 
was that one little tentacle that was still there from the Mm -hmm. eating disorder. And that just kept me basically in as miserable of an existence as if I'd just let all the tentacles wrap around me and strangle me. So what was the point? That was a good metaphor. There we go. (laughs) That was your metaphor. (laughs) So did you cut the tentacles? I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) Now, what words of wisdom have you got for our, I mean, I know you've got plenty, oh my gosh. plenty of words of pressure, wisdom, pressure. to leave our listeners with, I just would like you to leave them with something, something that they can go away and think about, especially for those who are still struggling in the trenches of an eating disorder. I think really the most important thing is you can do this. You can do this. You can get well, you can mm. come out the other side You can do it no matter what anybody else tells you. Because, of course, I think a lot of the therapies, they also do the best that they can with the knowledge that they have at this moment in time. Yeah. So whether that be, I don't know, FBT or cognitive behavior or whatever, they just do the best with the resources and the knowledge and the data that they've Mm -hmm. collected up until this moment in time. I think really the most important thing is, is if what you're doing at the moment isn't working, If you don't see yourself moving forward, change. Find a different strategy. Change your therapy. Change whatever. Mix things up, yeah? Because if you do more of the same thing, you're going to get more of the same result. I'm not saying that NLP and hypnotherapy is going to work for everybody. Any other therapy may work for somebody, but it depends on if you're not getting better, if you're not moving in the direction that you want to move into, the feedback is letting you know you've got to change something. Mm. Keep searching. But take matters into your own hands or somebody that you fully trust and ask for help. Asking for help is a useful thing to do as well. And um, yeah, change until you find mm. something where you kind of go, okay. And sometimes it can also be that a, a, a certain therapist helps you get to a certain to stage. a certain point, yeah. And then you just realize you're not shifting anymore. Okay, great. Then maybe that was the part of the journey that you needed together. Mm. And then you got to change again and find a different therapist. It might well be that it's still the same style of therapy, but you just need to work with a different person. Mm. And that's okay too. Like I don't, I don't take it personally at all mm. when, and I sometimes kind of go to a client as well. I think this is about as far as we can go. Like I, this is the end of the road for me, but I mm. think you now need to see a different person. Yes. And that's perfectly okay. Mm. But for me is, I absolutely believe that anyone can overcome this. I mean, I've worked with, you know, I've worked with people with massive post-traumatic stress disorder, with major anxiety, with horrible, horrible, horrible stuff, yeah? Mm. And um, I have seen people change and get well. Mm. So I know that it's possible. I just always remember when the first time you, you told you told me that and it was almost just sort of blew my socks off. I was like, what? <laughs> really? Yeah. Like you, because it was, I had been told by so many professionals up until this point, there is no hope you will not fully recover. You know, I mean, at that point, palliative care was being, that was the options that were, it's like, and there there was someone just sitting there, just in your complete authentic way as you do, (laughs) just going, yeah, well, if you want to change your brain, you can. Do you want to change it? (laughs) And we're just sitting there and going, what? Really? Okay. It It was, it was so powerful. I mean, I just remember, I remember your room so vividly. I remember Pippi, your dog, being there. Like, I just remember those moments because they were just such pivotal 
moments where my life changed forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, from all my sessions with you, there are so many things that I still use in my life now. Mm. And I think that's what's also so powerful about it is that these are tools, as you always said to me, in your tool belt that you have for life. Yeah. They didn't just apply to my struggle with anorexia. They apply to my life now and to how I often find myself using them in conversation with people, even if, you know, if someone was in, say, in a deep dark hole, whatever, you're able to, to pull on these resources that you now have. And so it's sort of like... It's so powerful and so transformative. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's true. Those those tools, you've got them for life. Yeah. You are amazing. Thank you, oh, thank you so much for coming today <laughs> and for talking. Because I just, I really want people to understand more about, you know, what it's like. So often people come to me and I just, now I'm going to be able to direct them to this podcast and say, <laughs> come and listen to my amazing Silky. Because she me. <laughs> I know you always say to me, you know, well, you did the work. And you, you did the like, work. But... I don't believe that I could have done it without you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to dance back into life again because that's basically what you did. And it's, yeah, I'll be forever grateful for that. Oh, thank you, Millie. That's a wonderful thing to say. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You did it. You did it. But it was was a great journey that we shared together. And um, I think that's where our great friendship comes from too. (laughs) Because we've been through so much. (laughs) Absolutely. We sure have. Got a few memories from those six months. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media production.